0: Howdy, folks! Welcome to Sketchy Conversations with John Melson IV. On today's episode, we talk with DJ James Nasty. We talk about how he creates Baltimore club tracks, his time at Rock Club, the Auto Bar, and debunk the rumor of an event called the Squirt Off at the Crown. Hey, we take a street level on the show, so if you're a friend of my language, okay. So, how's it looking on Baltimore?
1: How's it looking in Baltimore? It's a uh... You have people who are still taking COVID very seriously. You have people who don't care anymore and are not wearing masks and they just have like, they got that like sprint fever, just ready to get out the house and run around and do whatever. I'm somewhere in the middle depending on what day it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Your sentiment is shared by many actually. I'll put it that way. Yeah. So, when'd you get your start?
1: Huh, say that again?
0: When did you get to start, meaning, like, musically?
1: When did I start musically? Uh, I started playing clarinet in grade school band. I don't know, like, fourth, fifth grade. Then at some point I switched to saxophone in middle school because I figured that would get me more attention from the ladies. And then in high school I hit a Rebellion stage and quit concert band. For the ensemble, or whatever, and bought a guitar, and then I was in a few bands in high school and through part of college, but like they were never going anywhere because a lot of people didn't take it seriously. And then at, at UMBC, where I went to college, I also was in like the recording arts program, so I had a lot of free studio time, and that's when I started like getting some software to like make beats or whatever and was using all the extra studio time that no one else booked, and I would just grab friends and you know, bottle a bottle and j or whatever, and we'd just go jam in the studio. And then after college, I worked at a recording studio as their engineer. And then I was still, like, producing, but I just started, like, grabbing people's vocals from those sessions and, like, making them, like, club remixes on the low when they, without them knowing, and then sending them to them, like, oh, these are dope but I had, like, a producing partner, and we went by, I uh, was in a producing deal for a little while with a dude, and we went by Biscuits and Gravy. And uh that didn't last for more than, like, a year or so. And I just got to a point where I just got tired of the process of collaborating with others to, like, further my music career, and was just, like, how can I, how can I do this where, like, most of this is just me making the moves I want to make. And that's kind of when I, like, finally, like, began the whole journey as James Nasty and DJing and producing club music and releasing club records and all that.
0: What kind of bands were you playing in, in college and high school?
1: Uh, I was in a band called Preschool with a bunch of guys that lived in Laurel, Maryland. And we were somewhere between, like, let's see, That band was heavily influenced by Incubus. I've been, like, an Incubus fan since since I was young. Probably most people don't know that about me. I would say somewhere between Incubus, 311, The Deftones, and Reggie Against the Machine. Nah. Yeah. I played, like, lead guitar and just, like, was just always trying to write some, like, crazy Tom Morello riffs or, like, get really weirdly, like, spacey, like, on some, uh... What's the guitars from, from Incubus name Mike Enzinger? Like, the way he was... I was just, like, obsessed with his, like, pedal board setup and just trying to always find whatever crazy pedals... Oh. <laughs> whatever pedals I could use to, like, make some like, really trippy sounds. Like, that was sort of my vibe at the time. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then that project didn't get very far. We played, like, one show together... The rhythm guitarist got really jealous of me joining the band. And he quit. And then the lead singer just got caught up in too many other aspects of life. And just, like, that project ended. And I started, like, a three-piece sort of, like, sublime, like, a reggae band, but, like, also with, like, some weird, like, punk sublime elements after that with a friend I grew up with and some random dude that we knew named Rat Boy. And then uh, Rat Boy got arrested and went to jail for a while, so that was the end of that band. And then in college, I tried to start a band with some friends called, uh, you called the band Hot Tub. <laughs> and it started as a joke where just like I had all that studio time, and I just wanted to make like weird, like 70s, like porno funk I was just trying to start a band, was like, let's all just play like weird. Like, heavy wah-wah pedal guitar, funky bass line, just, like, weird, like, 70s porno funk. And, uh, it didn't really go anywhere. Like, I guess it was really, like, my project, and I was just, like, grabbing other friends that could play instruments to sort of jam with. But by the time I was done with college, I was, like, set on trying to be the next Pharrell or something instead of just trying to find who I was as a musician. That took me a few more years after that.
0: I did my shit entirely backwards, like, I was doing club mixes when I was coming up, I always had a love for rock, though, but I was doing club mixes and everything, right, and then I slowed down the club mixes and went to, you know, rock music, so it's like I did the shit, what you did, totally backwards. Just
1: in the opposite direction?
0: <laughs> exactly, like, yeah. complete opposite direction shit, you know? I was doing the club mixes because that was my only musical outlet because I couldn't really find any of people to jam with, right? So, okay. I gotta do something or something, you know? So, in my case, I'll use, like, different rock samples, like, I used to put up music under the name Alice of Maryland, right? Out of, res- okay. out of respect for um, Baltimore Club, I never called my shit Baltimore Club, I was called a Hood House or Ghetto Groove or something like that. Mm. Yeah. I used to, listen, I used to obsess with like 92 Q and those club mix and shit, you know? Yeah. All right. So, yeah, so, cause, uh, cause I, do you remember you mentioned you played bass guitar, right?
1: Yeah, I play guitar. I think I play a total of something like 10, 10, 13-ish instruments at this point. I don't really keep track anymore. You know, it's just like, to me, music, music theory is a language And then, like, any instrument you pick up is just learning to express that language through your hands or your mouth or whatever. Like, someone left a a friend who just, like, she was moving. Or just, like, trying to get into, like, the more, like, nomad lifestyle, like, living out of your car and driving around. You know, like, that, like, rich white girl thing where you just can do whatever you want. And she, like, left me with a cello. And I just started watching YouTube videos. And really, the hardest part was just, like, learning the, like, bowing technique, because I'd never played, like, an instrument before with a bow, but, like, you can play a guitar, like, anything with a fretboard is pretty much the same. Like, that's the last instrument I picked up, was, like, let me figure out how to, like, actually, like, play this thing. I'm not really, I don't think I'm really proficient at any one instrument professionally, other than maybe a guitar. But, uh. You know, as far as my own, my own project, I can pick up pretty much any of like 10 to 13 different instruments and like get the right riffs I want out of it or chords or whatever.
0: That's cool shit. Yeah. All right. So who do you say your biggest influences are?
1: That's a good question. Uh. I would say right now in life, Bob Marley is one of my biggest influences just as far as like the way he intentionally made music be like uplifting and, you know, an element of protest, but like making uplifting music, that's an influence right now. Um, I've always been influenced by like, Jimi Hendrix and Lenny Kravitz, just for sort of like the like, edgy, like rock star, like sort of rule-breaking uh, mentality they had. Uh, as far as DJs, I would say there's three DJs that I've always sort of been influenced by, and that's Joe Nice, Charles Feelgood, and Armand Van Helden. Yeah, Joe Nice and Charles Feelgood was, like, when I first moved to Baltimore and, like, met all those, like, weird, like, raver kids in college and, like, went to Fever for the first time or whatever. to some The first time I went to some weird show at Sonar, it was, like, seeing Charles and seeing Joe, like, working a room full of, like, mostly white ravers, like, holy shit, like, I didn't mean that. I never, I didn't think that we were really in that scene and thriving like that, you know. I was seeing, like, Chemical Brothers or whatever on TV. Like, okay, like, that's what it's like. I had no idea that Charles Charles Feelgood was such a force locally as a DJ. Um, let's see, oh, what else? I think otherwise, like, Raging This Machine will forever be a musical influence. Just, like, if you're not making music, Sort of like in the Bob Marley vein, like, if you're not making music to, like, empower people, you're kind of just bringing people down. At this point in my career, in my life, I have a lot of, like, regrets for those sort of, like, the club records I made that were, like, misogynistic or just, like, not, you know, not good for the people. I have a lot of guilt for, like, being, like, having, like, liquor sponsorships and just, like, encouraging people to drink and all that. I'm in a place now where like, I want to make sure that the music I put my name on or my hands on is like uplifting people. Some. There's plenty of other people out there who can make problematic music and make money. I want to not be in that category anymore. Yeah. Yep. It took a while, but I got there.
0: It's kind of a Baltimore rave scene, right? And when I want to say, kind of. I mean, in an understated fashion. Yeah. Did like Baltimore club and the rave scene ever, you know, did they ever kind of cross? Did they ever cross paths? Cross streams? Yeah, cross streams, or just completely segregated scenes.
1: It did. There was. I guess that was kind of my thing, because when I first started DJing, I was playing a lot of house music and club music. So like my formula for like the more rave parties when I first got booked to play more, you know, I got booked basically to play more like housey, just like four on the floor music. But I would like run like, oh, I'd like do that for, like the first 30 minutes, and I always had like my go-to like club records to sort of like finish my set up with, and just like approach an hour-long set with like luring people in with like floor on the floor, familiar beats, and then just, like, once I felt like I had the crowd and I had the dance floor in my grasp, I'm like, all right, well, now it's club music time. And I think also with, like, like the late, it was, like, 2008 to, like, 2011, 12, with, like, the Diplos of the World yeah. and the track and, like, Tetsworth and all of them, and, like, they were, they kind of appropriated club music for a moment. I think that also created, that also like created some awareness in the like rave scene, and like created opportunities for someone like me to like play a club music set. But I don't think like it was ever like widely accepted. I think there was some confusion, like especially like outside of Baltimore, people just considered it breaks. Like I'd play somewhere like, oh, you play those Baltimore breaks? I'm like, uh, what? People just call them, like, breaks, like, breakbeat as a whole. I guess as a whole genre, like, club music would fit into, like, the breakbeat genre. So, for me, it was always just, like, figuring out the best way to, like, sort of sell myself to people outside of Baltimore. They're like, hey, I'm going to show up and play something in between, like, 120, 130 BPM. It's not going to be all four on the floor. But, like, you just got to trust me that, like, I know how to read the room and, like, work a crowd regardless of where I am.
0: Yeah, because I've always described Baltimore Club as like House's angry cousin from Baltimore. hmm <laughs> Like, just really aggressive shit, you know, and because I remember, like, and I've always loved, like, almost the music concrete kind of sampling style, too. Like, I mean, he's, like, the think break, gas break, and damn near just put anything on there, you know? Yeah. And it's almost like a it's like almost like a reverse of like that kind of like that dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. It's almost like I've always loved how they just flipped that around and made it their own. Yeah, you know. All right. So let's... I mean, when you
1: talk when you talk to Scotty B about club music and the history of it, he'll always say like it all came from disco. So I think the guys that like first invented club music sort of approached it that way, like in the same way like house music sort of evolved from disco just as like electronic disco, like disco with drum machines and synths instead of like a room full of session musicians. I think the origin of club was that way and then it just sort of it just sort of developed more of a personality of Baltimore as a city. Which is like the way people started incorporating like the gunshot samples or like little John Watson, all those things. I think it was just the more aggressive the more aggressive elements from club music happen to be that Baltimore is a more aggressive, you know, there's more, a more, a more urgent way of life here. Fuck yeah. You know, like you go to the West Coast, the West Coast is super chill. You go to Chicago, they don't live very, you know, they don't have that, you know, the East Coast is a very fast paced, assertive, that's a good word to use, right? Like a very assertive place to live. Like, without, you know, hip-hop would have never started the same way as it did in New York if it was somewhere in the Midwest or in the West Coast. Like, look at how the West Coast, like, Dr. Dre and all them, like, look at how, like, the hip-hop they were making was so much different than what was happening in New York in, like, the 90s.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like- like, even, like, the samples they use on mm-hmm. the East Coast, these use more jazz and like harder funk samples. Mm-hmm. And the West Coast use more like, electro stuff, you know, more like, like, stuff out of Dayton, Ohio, and also a lot of P-Funk samples, too. Oh, yeah. You know. So, what's the Baltimore scene like, though? Right now? Just generally speaking, you know, like, for experiences over the years, like, if you can give, it like, an idea, like, I know it's constantly changing and stuff, but how would you describe it to somebody outside of the area?
1: Just club music or just, like, the music scene as a whole?
0: Club music first and then the scene as a whole.
1: For the most part, in the last, I don't know, five plus years, the club music scene has become much more of, like, a competitive dance scene than, like, necessarily playing in the clubs and just partying. With like the whole there's like the whole be more than dance movement and the King and Queen of Baltimore events. It's become much more like a battle dancing a much more battle dancing genre and scene than just like party music for the most part. And uh, I mean, I've mean, i kind of liked watching that happen over the years, like watching a whole new group of kids come up that were just like... So, like, I started making, you know, in the, in the last year or two, I've started, like, meditating and doing yoga as part of my evolution. And I got to the point where I started making my own music to meditate to. And I'm, like, watching the way, like, the dancers and, like, the club scene now sort of, like... Decided they wanted to make their own records to dance to, and like watching the genres, like the the evolution of the genre just like skyrocketed with that whole idea that like these kids who were doing all these like crazy footwork and all the dance music, all the dance moves were making making club records with that in mind. You know, I think part of the evolution is also just because, like, with any... I think with any type of music, like, you don't necessarily, you know... Music trends are always set by kids in, like, high school, maybe college. You know, when you're that age, like, you don't want to always be listening to the same kind of music your parents are listening to. Like, that's not cool. So, like, every 15, every 10, 15, 20 years, like, shit has to change. Shit has to evolve. And that's kind of what happened. Like, instead of the, like, more house music paced, like, more groovy, like, party club records that, like, we grew up listening to, like, this club music is a lot faster, and it's just different. It has a lot of the same elements of what I like to call the 410 formula. Joe Nice came up with that term, but I use it a lot more than he does maybe. But, like, they just use it, they just use it in a whole different way. Like, club music is a template as a genre and I think like these kids are doing something completely different with it than like the elders did.
0: Thoughts on offshoots like Jersey city and and Philly club. What about it? What are your thoughts on it?
1: Uh, I like what they do. Again, it's another evolution of what the 40 formula is. I think the problem that we have is that unlike so something like hip-hop as a genre started in New York, and obviously it became something much bigger than that. I don't know I don't know in history if it was ever called New York hip hop. But I guess when, like, club music got originally branded Baltimore Club Music, I think for it, you know, when it became an issue, when it became something that people in other cities were making and they decided to call it Jersey Club or Philly Club, I think a lot of the people in this town that pioneered the sound felt like their, you know, the sound was being stolen and appropriated and that they weren't being given the proper credit. You know, you know. Some people in the city call it club music. Some people call it Baltimore club. And I think, in, at this point in my life, I would like to see it all called club music. But also, everyone acknowledge the fact that it started in Baltimore. Instead of there being a separate, instead of there being a separate story about the origin of Jersey club or the origin of Philly club, the only origin story that needs to be told is the origin of how it started in Baltimore. Same way the only real origin story that needs to be told about hip-hop is the origin story from New York. I mean, yeah, you can then also tell, you know, how Dr. Dre and Death Row Records made their own, started their own movement. Or you can talk about the Atlanta movement and trap music and all that. But, like, in club music, like, we don't need to call different city clubs you know,
0: we can just call it what it is. It's, no, let's call it Baltimore Club because you know, because it almost feels like every city has that scene and stuff, right? Like mm-hmm. Chicago had, um, you know, Ghetto House. Um, Detroit had Ghetto Tech. You know, Baltimore definitely called a Baltimore Club because it doesn't sound like New York House. It doesn't sound like, you know like, house in Chicago, so let's go to Baltimore Club, but club music, okay, cool.
1: Yeah, I think, that's just my opinion, I know other people don't feel the same way.
0: Oh, well, makes sense, though. Well, mm-hmm. you, your opinion makes sense, though. Yeah, We've created a track, what's your creative process?
1: Mm-hmm. At this point, I mostly work in Ableton. And I have, uh, what is it? Like an Akai MPD, like USB MIDI controller that's got, I think it's 48 keys, They're like 16, 16 drum pads, some faders, and some knobs on it that I can automate. Most of the time, I either start with I either start with like a melodic riff in my head that I play, or a vocal sample or something that I want to like chop up, or like I have a I have an Ableton template that has like all of my all the samples, like all my drum samples, all my loops that I would normally use. I have those already like loaded up on the different channels and in the different plugins. And sometimes I'll just load that up and just, like, put, you know, the traditional club drum patterns and stuff in there. And I'll just put that in a loop and try to create over top of it. But I think more than likely I try to start with a riff or a sample and then just, like, sort of apply the club music formula to it. Yeah. You know, for me, club music has always been, like, a sort of, like, I guess for me, I always started. I always started remixing before I was making anything more original. So I still kind of take the approach of like hearing a vocal sample or hearing a riff, and treating it like all right. Well, I'm making a remix, and this is like the original source, like this riff or this vocal sample. So I
0: was just I didn't know you made remixes. How'd you go about making those?
1: In that in that period between, like, leaving bands, like, leaving the band world behind and, like, not working in studios and the engineer or producer anymore, it was just, like, me by myself at home with uh, FL Studio and just, like, you know, some of the biggest club records at the time I was hearing was, like, every week, whatever whatever the hottest, like, hip-hop records on the radios were, like, we're getting club remixes of it, so I just, like, sort of took you know, I just sort of took the example from those that came before me. Like, find records you like and remix them. Find records you like and like put that club music formula on them. So I started doing that because like I didn't really want to work with anyone at the time and like find original vocals. The one thing I've never, never, the one thing I've never done is been a vocalist. So I was like, well, unless I get someone else to give me the vocals that I hear in my head, I'm not gonna be able to get that, get those ideas out. So it was easier for me just to go find some acapellas or find an old record that I like and chop it up and remix it.
0: Yeah. You did that one song called Muscles, right?
1: Muscles, yeah.
0: That's been stuck in my head for damn near about a decade. <laughs> 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 That's what i telling you that. Oh, man. All right. That's-
1: do you want to know the story of how that track came together? Fuck
0: yes, I do. It might help. <laughs> <Come on. laughs>
1: I was living in this apartment. It was like a studio apartment in Mount Vernon. And I want to say it was after... It was either the night of or the day after either Thanksgiving or Christmas. And I did, uh, I went to like my grandmother's house to see my family and eat. Christmas dinner, Thanksgiving dinner. And my grandmother always had, like, this, like, secret liquor cabinet. that I guess was, like, my grandfather, who's not passed away, but it was, like, his, like, liquor cabinet. But, like, no one was touching it. So every time I went over there in the ho- during the holidays, I would, like, grab a bottle or two. And I remember, I think I grabbed an old bottle of mezcal and an old bottle of whiskey that was, like, so old. It had, like, like a weird, like, film of, like, grease and like dust on top of them, and I came home and I hit up uh, Jay Lawson who's like the main vocalist on the record and he came over and I just like laid down the club drums and I just had like whatever that synth bass line I just had that synth just like loaded up and like just playing some random notes on the keys and I came up with the bass line and we're drinking this like old ass whiskey and just getting super drunk. And Jay had the microphone and everything that you hear in that record from him vocally, like was just like him improvising. He didn't write any of that. I'm just playing the bass line, and he's just improvising, and I just hit record and it's like for like ten minutes we were just jamming and then after that, the next morning I woke up and listened to everything. I was like, "Yo, there's something in all this," and I just sort of like took everything he said and just sort of cut different pieces out and just like did my normal remix thing and just like made it into a record. And this was when I was still doing that party at the Auto Bar, and I started playing it at the Auto Bar because at that time, like, I was making club records for my sets there, like. Everything I put out between 2010 and 2014 were just club records I was making for my own sets. I would make it, I would bounce it down. On Friday night, I'd have it all loaded up in Serato, and just when I played, I would just test them out and see how people reacted to them. So I started playing Muscles, and then one night, Jay was there, and he wanted to get on the microphone and perform it, and then we performed it. But then it became a thing we did every week for like a month or so and everyone would just like lose it. And then I was like, all right, well what if I did what if I did some like DJ Khaled type shit with it and just like got a bunch of different people to put verses on it. So I got my friend Taylor on it and I reached out to the rap dragons who were also hot at the time and I was like, yo, can you guys all just like give me eight or sixteen bars on this like trying to make some like DJ Khaled of club music shit happen right here? That's how the whole final version came together. But then I think by the time that all finished, like all the labels, like TNA or Mad Decent or, uh, uh, what's for A label? Fool's Gold. Like all those labels that were fucking with club music for a little while. Like at that point, they had all sort of moved on from that sound and like dubstep was starting to pop. So I'm sending these demos to all these labels and they were just like not really interested in it. I was like, all right, well, that's that. So I never really got even a, it. never really got a proper release. It just became like this like legendary moment at a phys Ed every Friday, somewhere between like twelve and one a.m. Jay standing on a chair, or moshing in the middle of the dance floor, performing muscles and yeah.
0: Okay, aside from DJing, you booked at clubs too, right? Yeah. All right, so as a booker, like it's like how did that go?
1: It was much more challenging than I thought it would be. When you take a job like that and you already know so many people in the industry, you have a lot of people approaching you for favors. you have a lot of people that are gonna approach you on like an unofficial channel. You know, when I was booking at the Crown or at North Avenue Market, like, I had a booking email and I would tell people if you wanted to do something, like hit me on that email. I'm just one person that's a part of a team that needs to see these communications about what we're booking. So one of the biggest challenges with people like DMing me on Instagram or texting me or calling me on my personal phone. Are emailing my James Nasty email to talk about shows. I'm like, yo, like, this is not the proper channel to discuss this. Like, I do want to work with you, and I want to do this, but you have to contact me on the right channel because I'm a part of a team, and everyone else involved in this venue needs to see what we're talking about and, like, you know, to keep these things on record. No, I'm not... I'm not booking for, like, an IMP venue, like 930 Club or Soundstage or things where they have, like, special, special applications and, like, a formal system for booking shows and advancing, advancing shows and everything. Like, I'm working for two venues that didn't have those things in place, and I'm working to sort of create that sort of infrastructure in, like, Google, Google Docs and Google Drive. And, like, it was just, like, difficult to keep these people emailing me at that email so I could copy and paste these things or just in general. Like, Baltimore is not, it's not a big industry town like New York or L.A. or Atlanta where you have people who maybe learn more of the business side of things in the beginning and they can speak the language. So, like, I'm booking this show and trying to get people to fill out a form to advance the show, and they're like, well, what's an ad- what does advancing mean? I'm like, oh, my God. Like, no one wants to work with contracts, or nobody wanted to use a radius clause, and, like, all these things that... You know, all the things that people use that are at a certain level in the music business, like, it's normal, everyday... It's, like, everyday things for them. It's, like, I'm teaching people... I'm teaching people these things and trying to like help develop the talent that I believe in and that I want to work with. And some people just are like against the whole concept of being industry or doing these yeah. things. But at the same time, the venues have expectations. The venues expect certain results from me that I can't give them because I'm like, look, you are expecting a lot from a group of artists that maybe don't actually have the skill set to provide those things you know like you can see someone put on a cool warehouse show and that's one thing but if you're asking them to do it at a legitimate venue it's completely different first of all the same demographic of people that are going to a party at the annex might not come to north avenue market you know Part of it is just, like, cool kid, like, scene shit. They're like, we don't go there. So, like, you can tell me to book someone who's got this cool movement going on over here, underground, but that experience, the show they put on, the way they operate, and their fans might not come to this venue. So just being a middleman between, like, a very structured business world and a very unstructured sort of, like, creative community and like I was always the bad guy on, in the middle so I probably would never do it again honestly
0: I don't blame you actually I remember yeah. some I remember some bad guys there they weren't on that list in my opinion yeah yeah We remember like um it's good to told to me autobar is really difficult to book because it, it feels like they couldn't pick up a damn phone it's kind of weird you know, or or respond to an email, you know?
1: I don't want to get too heavy into the uh, autobar because I've had, had a very long... I have a lot to say about the autobar, and I don't want to get too deep into it. But there was definitely a level of... I don't know. I don't know if it was nepotism or what it was, but it just never seemed like... The Auto bar was a great venue to embrace all of embrace all of local music you know you have some people who got some people who got on shows and were able to like grow a fan base and grow a career by playing at the auto bar and I think there are other people that are make that were making the same genre of music that never got. A chance to play at the Auto Bar because of whatever reasons and how they did their booking and how they ran the business.
0: Yeah, actually, it was kind of funny because my next question I wrote down was there were some issues at Auto Bar, right? Yeah. But um, if you don't want to talk about that, it's understood, you know. But if you do, hey, feel for, go for it, you know. Sometimes episodes, can, these episodes can go for I two mean, hours, so go off. <laughs> and <I'm> almost <laughs> like shoot, you know.
1: I'm not afraid to talk about it. I guess. Go for I it. I think at this point, at this point, I have everything that needs to be heard. At this point, I still talk about the auto bar just because I think a lot of people in this town, or even outside of this town, don't really understand what happened, and the auto bar being the bigger entity, were able to get out in front, and sort of make up, create their own dialogue around what happened, that is like totally false. But you know, when you have like a solo black musician. Versus an entire organization full of white people. Like, people are going to look listen to the entire organization full of white people instead of the single black artist. The same way if a woman says a man sexually assaulted her, people are more likely to believe the man's like, I didn't do it, she's lying, she's trying to fucking ruin my career. More people are probably going to listen to that man than listen to the woman. Um, not to equate what happened to me to... You know, I'm not trying to draw a direct parallel between those those, uh, those uh, scenarios, but it's just like a lot of times it seems like victims don't get... People tend not to believe the victims when the uh, abusers are in a much higher position of power. Oh, yeah.
0: That's why I kind of feel like, seriously, Hollywood is three more scandals away from being just crumbled. Just three yep. more. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, that's another thing too because I kind of felt like, hey, Am I a little salty sometimes with certain venues because they say, "Oh, we we'll sound like an email, right?" And I was like, "Okay, we did, right?" But it's kind of weird, like how, you know, I put it as what they're the kind of venues where They'll say "Black Lives Matter," but oh, we um, we didn't see the email you sent. I sent it five times. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Or it's like, oh, we're a family. That's a fucked up family too, motherfucker. Don't mean shit. Yep. You know, so I'm like, when some of these venues started closing down, I was like, we did a lot of these bands dirty? Mm hmm. Um, Yeah. So,
1: when I first started playing at the Auto Bar, I was just a guest DJ at the uh, Mustache Dance Party. That was, I guess, like, started by, it was started by Riddell, who I guess his stage name now is Isaac Shane. And then I became, like, a resident DJ pretty quickly. And then Riddell moved on to other projects and moved out of Baltimore. And it became, so, you know, the event sort of became something that I was much more responsible for. But still working with other original residents of the party. And then, you know, everyone else pretty much moved on to other career opportunities in music or elsewhere. But, y'all, you know, after like four years of consistent every Friday night at the auto bar, like what we had was something that was like a big deal. And then I sort of had an opportunity to play downstairs on a Tuesday night when like the two for Tuesdays upstairs situation was too crowded. They started having like an overflow situation downstairs. You know, if you put the best DJ in Baltimore, because I guess I have two awards that say that. I believe in myself most of the time, but I would never call myself the best. I'm saying it in the top five, but whatever. <laughs> I, uh, you know, you put the best DJ in a room. You know, what happened was everyone started coming downstairs, and music was better, and it just it just grew out of control. We outgrew where I was playing at to the point where I was on the stage, and then it became this thing where we had like three to four hundred people in the building every Tuesday night. And everyone's making a shitload of money. And all of a sudden, there's just, like, some jealousy starting to creep in among some staff members that worked there. There were also musicians. And it just became a really weird thing where, like, I had developed a certain personal relationship with the owner that I think a lot of other people associated with the venue didn't have. They didn't have the same kind of access to him that I did. There was a particular conversation with the current owner of the Autobar, Tecla. Where one night she was gossiping to me about how the like majority owner was gonna start looking for someone to buy out one of the other minority partners in it because he wasn't carrying his weight. And Tecla was talking about how she was like, Yep, yeah, I think that's gonna I'm gonna do it. You know, she was kinda like humble bragging about I'm about to be an owner of the auto bar. I'm about to be an owner of the auto bar. And I was like, Oh shit. Like he's looking for someone. I was like, I could do that. Like I always kind of wanted some ownership of this place. Like I feel like I've invested so much time and energy into like helping expand this venue's brand as more than just a rock club or a place where skin pads hang out. You know, you know, me and the other people I worked with on mustache and, and physical education. Like we worked very hard to like, promote the auto bar as a much safer space than it really was at the end of the day. You know, and I'm I'm an entrepreneur at the end of the day. I was like, if there's an opportunity to have some ownership in this, like, I'm going to shoot my shot. And I think that changed the way Tecla perceived me going forward. And I think that was one of the pivotal moments where I noticed that everyone working there started to turn against me and against the event. They were threatened that like, their, like, rock music, like, skinhead, like, clubhouse, and, like, their autobar family and their way of life and their, like, safe space for, like, white metal or whatever was being threatened by me. And I think they sort of, like, all loosely conspired to just, like, keep me away from there and just sort of, like, make non-straight white people feel comfortable there. You know, there was the whole controversy with them hiring a six-foot-five black man as a new security guard whose sole job was to pat down people at the door on Tuesdays, you know, and all this other stuff they were saying about. We heard from undercover Baltimore police officers that they were watching the auto bar specifically on Tuesday nights for open-air drug traffic and all this shit. And I was like, all right, they're just literally putting all these things in place to start persecuting the black people that come to my events, you know. I mean anyone who anyone who's ever hung out at the auto bar knows like everyone at the auto bar is doing drugs, like that's not a secret. It's a fucking club. Like just because now all of a sudden there's a very diverse event happening on a Tuesday, like, that's not the first time someone walked into the auto bar with fucking cocaine. It's not the first time someone walked into the auto bar with some weed in their pocket or with a fucking you know, their own fucking flask of tequila or vodka in their pocket, they just didn't want they were just threatened by my presence they were threatened and they just needed a way to like end my working relationship with them and it all ended after like they were like they would always be like we're so concerned about the violence and the fighting at your night there were three fights that happened over the course of the two years of me doing two for Tuesdays Two of them involved one guy who was mentally unstable and was like not, you know, didn't make enough money to afford the medications he was on. And then after the second time he got in a fight, he was banned. Then the third time, there was like one fight one night in which security did not follow proper security protocols, and they just like, security at the bar just like, started scrapping with a group of young black men and it just became this whole ordeal. And I got a call the next morning from one of the owners slash manager, and the conversation started with, like, hey, man, we're not, like, racist or anything, but, like, I think for Tuesdays, we want to go back to Tuesdays being a sort of, like, rock and roll, uh, Britpop kind of thing, you know, what they were doing upstairs. So, I mean, you know. Anybody who's ever experienced any level of racism or know what racism is knows that any time someone starts a conversation with, I'm not trying to be racist, or we're not racist, knows that they're planning on doing something that they know is racist, but hoping that if they say that it's not racist, that they're, like, completely absolved of any accountability for it.
0: That never works. I mean, that, that just solidifies the shit, you know? Yep. Uh-huh. You know, it's kind of so. like... It's kind of like when somebody says no homo and it said, like, some of those... That doesn't make it any different, dude. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I'm like, that doesn't make it sound any different, man. Right. You know? Shoot. But yeah, you know, you know the jacked part about it is it's kind of an America Eats his Young situation because what I'm seeing right now is... Here's the thing I'm seeing in rock music right now. I'm seeing a lot more lot more young black and brown artists come in, really be featured on Guitar World or just even like share their music on TikTok or whatever right and right. it has to happen because seriously the image that rock really has is I'll put it this way there's no there, I don't think there's a future for that image if that makes sense Right. you know you can't be the dude from Trapped in the future you know mm-hmm. you can be a Travis Barker though you know, hell, he could be a Billy Ray Cyrus, but there's no <laughs> there's no future for guys like Kid Rock. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's what I'm seeing. So, in a weird way, you know, when I heard stuff about Autobar, and I was hearing kind of, no pun no pun intended, some sketchy conversations about that place. I've heard some things. I was like, oh, huh, interesting. You know, there was a, uh-huh. something about, coincidentally about the time when um you got booted. Um, There was a Energy shift, so to speak. So, yeah, you know, yeah. So, so the next thing I see, like, a uh, what well, GoFundMe is one of, like, of all the pay to play events that you guys used to host over there, I'm like, there's a little karma, I guess, right? You know,
1: so maybe if you weren't, you know, if you did better, if you did a better job of communicating supporting all of Baltimore's music community, maybe people would do a better job of supporting your music venue. But if you go out of your way to be like a white establishment and make everyone that's not white feel uncomfortable, like, yeah, you're gonna struggle in a town where the majority of people are black. You know? I mean, they had actual, like, skinheads like hanging out at the auto bar, and they never once kicked these dudes out. These dudes are just like friends of the dudes that work there. I'm pretty sure they have, like, white nationalists working on the security staff, you know. There were definitely always dudes that had very questionable vibes. And I was like, everything about the way you dress, the way you talk, like, you know, I have, I have you know, my spidey senses are tingling about a few people there. And, you know, there was always, like, the random, like, fucking skinheads. that would show up, they'd get all fucked up, they would start fights. But no one ever banned them. The auto bar never once came out and was like, yeah, like, we believe Black Lives Matter, and we're trying to be a safe space. Like, if you're going to do all that, but you're not going to say, like, hey, there's a group of skinheads that come hanging at the bar periodically that start fights and cause trouble, and we've banned them. You know? If you're not going to come out and say that you've banned these dudes, like, what kind of safe space are you? It's just performative bullshit to try to make money.
0: Exactly. You know, So. I mean... The only venues I really spoke about certain things like that will be the. What I've noticed though was the Depot and also Sidebar. Uh huh. You know, smaller, but, you know. Yeah, you know, at least they're about the shit. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah.
0: You used to book over the Crown too, right?
1: I did. What's that? Did I used to do the booking at the Crown. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Same vibe or something a little bit different though.
1: The Crown's vibe is different. The Crown was a much more inclusive atmosphere. The staff there prioritized that inclusion which is why a lot of the events there were very diverse. I just think there was a huge divide between ownership, the group of people who are managing and run, like running the crown, and the performers there as far as performers getting fairly compensated for their work. I mean, I think in Baltimore in general, most people get paid, like, it seems like a standard for, like, a lot of nights. He's like, oh, we'll give you 10% of the bar, you know. Some places will pay you a flat rate as a DJ. Just like, okay, if you can bring a certain number of people, you know, my nights seem busy, I'll pay you this much. If I bring more than this much at the bar, I'll pay you this much more. But, like, otherwise, like, your door deal is either, like, don't charge a cover and get 10% of the bar, or if you charge a cover, you know, you get X percent of a door. And I just don't think those deals have ever been fair to artists at, you know, a lot of venues, you know. as a music As a music venue, like, you have... You have an entire bar, and your bar staff should be working to sell drinks so that you can make money as the owner of the bar. Like your artists are the ones that are doing all the work to promote not just themselves but also your venue and bring people to your venue to spend money at the bar. Like you shouldn't have your hand in the pocket of that door money for twenty, thirty, forty percent. You know?
0: Yeah, definitely. You know? So. Um... You know, what do you think about bands? You know, yeah, you know, I kind of feel this way. There was a time when it felt like you weren't really a valid and artist or band unless you were playing out live, right? But, you know, with the pandemic and everything, I noticed a lot of bands have just been posting stuff up online or doing live streams. Do you think if things don't change, venues might become a thing of the past until shit gets changed up or what? Mm-hmm.
1: No, I think venues will need to, I said venues that want to survive will need to evolve. If you have, give me one second, I'm chewing up some food. Oh, yeah. If you have a music venue, you have a stage, and you have lighting. The average band doesn't have access to that same sort of stage and lighting setup in their practice space or wherever they're going to be live streaming from. Like, there's no reason why music venues can't evolve to get whatever infrastructure is needed to live broadcast.
0: I had the same idea. That's why I was kind and of live broadcast that.
1: broadcast shows. Like, you know, you don't have to be in the room.
0: Exactly. I mean... And
1: it's not the same experience, but at least it's like a better presentation of a band than just like these guys live streaming from their practice space.
0: I've been saying this. In fact, I've even made a post about this on Facebook a couple of... Wow, damn. About a couple of months ago, and I figured it out. I mean, listen. We're becoming more of an introverted society, I notice. People don't really... Well, I can't really say for everybody a lot of people basically they always felt kind of weird like like for example I haven't figured a way for venues for bands get paid fairly mm-hmm. and it was fucking obvious strike a deal with the parking Strike strike a deal with the parking lot <laughs> hmm. seriously because that's the most yeah. the biggest complaint is almost like it's like ah, I'm not sure about the parking thing if he's if it like a parking you know with the if it's like a parking lot strike a deal with the venue they get a cut off that if you're going for the show there you go it does makes make sense. You know, and I was thinking the same thing. Like, I was trying to pitch the idea of, like, hey, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it makes more sense if a venue was, you know, just doing live streams, like, you know, buy a ticket to that live stream and everything. It just makes more fucking sense to do that. So, you know, the, oh, I got to fold the dishes kind of exp- ex- excuse anymore. Yeah. You know, because so I was just figuring this shit out a while back. I'm like, I mean is that kind of obvious? I'm surprised more videos haven't done over years. I mean, literally, it'll be throwing it back to the old days of, like, Darn Cursor's rock experience, when it was literally just, like, a studio and everything, right? Or, like, in concert on ABC. Same idea. Yeah. You know? I never could figure out why they wouldn't do that. I mean, it just makes more sense, you know? And, hell, have, like, different tiers. Like, you know, kind of like a Netflix thing. You know, like, $5 for local bands, $25 for, like, for like national touring acts, we get you pay twenty five dollars for taking anyway, right? right Fifty yeah. for like international, hundred for like other shit. It just makes fucking sense.
1: Yeah, Or you can just have like a subscription service. Ex- like I was just X saying amount, that to, the subscription service. You pay like shit. X amount of dollars per month to the music venue. We have to to watch all the shows. Like we have the same Thursday, idea. Friday, Saturday, you can watch every show.
0: Exactly
1: live or like after the fact. Like there's, a- I think with like all this like blockchain technology right now and all the development there I think we're going to see some new
0: I think we're going to see some new methods it does make sense you know happen where
1: like if you're a fan of a certain act you can put money directly into their pocket that allows you to get you know experience all the different aspects of what that band is like you know there'll be some sort of architecture where if a band's selling tickets to their show, the money goes to them, and then the music venue just gets sort of their cuts. Exactly.
0: To and that just you makes know, sense, you know?
1: You know. Or if you're buying music, if you're buying this band's, like, record, like, their cut goes directly to them, the record label's cut goes directly to them. You know, there's no reason for it to be, like, all these middlemen and all these gatekeepers and all these just, like, all these like exploitative capitalists that are just getting between artists trying to sell their art and people trying to enjoy art, you know, because that's the biggest problem with the music industry is the 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 sharks and the vultures in between the makers and the consumers.
0: Exactly, you know, you know, I was thinking the same idea. Like, this makes more sense that these venues have a subscription service to this shit. And also another thing too, like, um, I was like, we make we make money the food as well okay, yeah, Uber Eats and shit like that, you know, basically, yeah, whatever, just hook that shit up, it just makes fucking sense, that's why most of these venues open staying in the open anyway, cause they're doing, like, mm-hmm. because they're turning a restaurant. Duh. Yeah. Just literally take the show to the audience, you know, there's no more yeah. excuse. You yeah. know?
1: I did an event I did an event like that for Valentine's Day, there's a new thing, it's called Take Out Get Down and that's what they're doing, where it's like, you spend whatever amount of dollars it is, and that gets you like there's like participating restaurants. So you pick the restaurant, you pick what you want to eat. There's like dinner for two and a show. Like the show's recorded and you know, when you when you buy your you buy your tickets and it gets the food for two people and it gives you the code to access the show.
0: That's a great fucking idea, you know.
1: You know, so that's how you do it. You're like, alright, I got like and any any restaurant could be doing like how come like fucking taco bell or anyone can be like just right, saying like, this like literally it's like, look you you know 50 bucks you get like 50 dollars worth of fucking food and or whatever I mean not 50 bucks but whatever the price is you get dinner for two or four and you get access to this like exclusive streaming content like that's it like a lot of people don't want to go back to clubs right now they don't want to go out but they still want to consume live music they still want to see their favorite bands perform I mean, like a lot of musicians that are sitting around like waiting like what happens next you know it's not the same experience as like being in a room but it's something to do
0: exactly you know like i'll put it this way you're not going to find to me at least for a few years you're not going to find these i'll put it this way i don't see any big arena shows like baltimore like like what's it called now? what's it called nowadays because that thing changed like name four or five times um
1: the arena Royal Farms Arena yeah Royal
0: Farms Arena because I remember it was called different shit over the years I don't really see something like Royal Farms Arena being a venue like that anymore like the biggest like the biggest it might be Baltimore Soundstage for a while mm-hmm. you know like you're not going to basically have like um, events at like um, uh, I was about to call it Verizon Center but that's all. I'm dating myself like a motherfucker what's the thing called again now um, the one in D.C. The yeah. big D.C. arena? Yeah, yeah, that motherfucker. Yeah. Uh,
1: I don't know. It keeps shan- saying... No, not Comcast. No. It's University of Maryland.
0: Shit, this is it. But yeah, that one. Um, Shit. Capital One Arena, that's what it was.
1: Capital One Arena. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're going to start taking shit to Showplace Arena in the future. At least for a <laughs> while. It's going to smell like horse shit. But... Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be about that size for a while. And, you know, until stuff gets... You know, until people feel safe, you know, and comfortable and whatnot. You know, but I had the same idea the subscription service thing. It just makes sense. of what happened in the future, you know. You know. So, speaking of smaller venues, right, there was one wild ass rumor I heard about the crown, by the way. Ooh, okay. What is this rumor about a squirting competition being held at the crown?
1: <laughs> the squirt off.
0: What the fuck is this about?
1: The squirt off. So, I guess it started as a joke and these guys made like a joke flyer for it and they even made like a club mix that was like see what the squirt off did (laughs) honestly that was the biggest that was the hottest club record of 2020 I mean obviously without being able to be in clubs or anything a lot of club records didn't come out but like the first time I heard that squirt off club track I was like oh my god
0: I didn't know anything about the squirt off club track I was like oh man Cause I gotta find that now, you know. But I'm like, cause the first thing I heard of, what I was like, okay, we're in the middle of a pandemic. This does that sound sanitary? Right, right. You know, and I'm like, the second thought I had was, I'm gonna give you some tarps, cause support your local scene. (laughs) I mean, that's the first thing I thought of. I was like, yo,
1: yeah, I was just like, this can't be real. I was like, how are you? Like y'all? Like, who's gonna? How do you judge a squirt? Like what? I don't know. That's there another so good question thoughts.
0: too. Like, how do you? There's a how lot do you of judge factors.
1: judge? What kind of prize do you win? Who would want to enter a squirt off? There was so many things going on, <laughs> on in my brain.
0: I know a few like, actually.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. <laughs>
0: yeah, and I was like, like you somebody.
1: Go
0: ahead. What were you saying? So I was like, yo! It's like, <laughs> it's like, I got an idea, you know. This is like, a, shoot! If anything, I would take it a closer that that kind of event would have taken more. At I'll put it this way: I was more surprised if it take if it were to exist, it would be a surprise. It would take a place like there because I was thinking, well, you yeah, the Hustler Club down there too. So I'm like, I'm more surprised. Right, right. So it was just like some weird troll shit, huh?
1: Yeah, it's just a joke. That a few guys put the flyer on Twitter, and then someone with, like, a much larger account saw it and retweeted it and was like, what the fuck are they doing in Baltimore? And then it just sort of blew up from there. Exactly. To the point where, like, people were messaging the Crown, like, is this real? Like, are y'all open again? Like, where can I buy tickets to the Squirt like, <laughs> Off? How, how do I get involved in the Squirtle? Exactly. The Crown had to issue a statement and be like, yo, this isn't real. We're not booking any shows right now.
0: Alright, so that's amazing. So, it makes you kind of wonder, it's like, it's like, well, you know, that's kind of a good idea. It's like, okay, that makes you kind of wonder, though. Mm-hmm. I wonder if anybody spires something off in the future, like... Because you'd be yep. surprised what comes off from a fucking joke. Right. You you know? Know? Oh,
1: shit, people, people are kind of into this, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I personally would not want to go to a squirt-off, and I think after I initially processed, like, the, uh, the logistics of how the event was happening, I was like, this is kind of fucked up, honestly, like, I don't think this Yeah, is-
0: and also, it's kind of this- a... Like, and how big is the crown, anyway? How big is the crown? Yeah.
1: The main room, the red room, I think its capacity is roughly 250, 250-ish. The blue room, I think, is cap is around, like, 90 to 120.
0: Yeah, that's a horrible and idea. Then,
1: and then downstairs is, like, what much less than the, maybe, like, 40 tops.
0: Yeah, that's a horrible idea. That's a, that's a terrible idea. That's an yeah. awful, yeah, awful you're idea.
1: Yeah, you're already asking people to stay six feet away from each other. Exactly! Then they also got to stay however far away from these performers. Who knows how far they're going to square? Like, what?
0: Exactly, like, this is... I don't understand, man. This is... Like... I don't understand,
1: man. What a weird world we live in. It
0: really is. You know. Well, okay, I guess to kind of wrap it up though. How'd you get the name James Nassie anyway? Uh,
1: My real last name is Gross. There was a moment in college one night where a friend of mine, we were all drunk. Me and my friends, we sorta started our own fraternity in college. We like I think a lot of us like went to college thinking that we wanted to get into Greek life. And maybe we we started like actually experience it in real life with like people that were actually involved, we we're like, Yeah, this isn't really for us. And it's like we kinda liked the idea of having like our own like weird club or gang or whatever, like in our own letters to rep or whatever, but we didn't really want to go through the whole process of pledging and all that extra shit you gotta do. So we created our own fraternity, and this is kind of also like how I started DJing. Me and my roommate, we would make, uh, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but every Friday before, we'd have parties at our apartment every Friday on campus. Before the party, we would make the playlist for the night in Winamp.
0: Okay, we're definitely age peers.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, like, we would have, like, from 10 to 2 a.m., basically, we would map out all the music that would play to sort of, like, dictate the energy of the night. But uh, one night during one of those parties, a friend of mine put his arm around me and just looks at me. He just goes, James Gross, you know what? I'm going to start calling you James Nasty or James Disgusting or James Ugh and we all laughed about it i'm pretty sure other people heard it but like after that it just stuck he always called me james nasty everyone started to call me that my uh, first dj gig at sonar they were just like a friendly like, booked me and he was like what's your what's your dj name what's your stage name and i was like uh uh uh, uh, uh. i guess james nasty like i didn't really want i never really wanted that to be my stage name I was just sort of, like, under pressure to pick a name. And I was like, well, this is a nickname. You know, I had never thought through my own stage name. And just, like, as soon as I started, it all just, like, took off so fast. So I was like, I don't have the time to change my name. I don't want to hurt the brand. I've already started with this. I guess I just have to ride this out.
0: All right.
1: Yeah. All
0: right. You know, there you go. You know. Yeah. It's kind of funny because... It's kind of like how a lot of rappers now, they sound like... Their names sound like Gamertags. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, You ever notice that or is that just me?
1: I don't really understand what all the letters in front of a lot of people's names are now. Like, the rappers, like... They have, like, a three-letter... Like, three letters before the name or in their name. I'm like, I don't know what that stands for.
0: Yeah. Like, I think of, like, NBA Youngboy. I'm like, okay... Um... I guess he's a because it's, it's, really I thought it was like a fucking gamer tag when I first heard about him. I was like, "Oh, it's a rapper." Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: I could be wrong. I might also just be too old to know, but I think the NBA was like never broke again. Is that
0: what it is. Saying? That's what it is. It never broke yeah, again. Cool. Which makes yeah, sense. I'm, I'm slowly learning. I try to. I'll put it this way. That's another good question too. What's the difference between knowing something sounds like ass? And you ever ask yourself the question, okay, if I was younger, would I like this or do my ears just get old? Um. Because I'm kind of dealing with that right now. I'm trying to figure out, like, okay, do they suck or am I just, you know, over 35? Because I try to put them, like, okay, what I have liked this when I was 15 or 16? Nope, wouldn't have liked it.
1: <laughs> I think there's a lot of music that, when you're that age, I think a lot of your taste in music is influenced by your peers and the peer group you want to fit into. So maybe you accept certain things as something you like more than what you actually like it. Yeah. I think also a lot of just like, a lot of times, like, music, you only come to, like, a record just because it's, like, repeti- like, repeated. Like, you know, you listen to the radio all the time. Like, you hear the same song all the time. And you're like, I don't even really like it. And then one day you just think, I guess I'm into this. Like, I know it. It's familiar. So I guess I like it. Like, that's one of the, like, main marketing strategies for music in the business. just, like, the more you can expose people to a fucking song, the more likely they are to like it. So you have the money to just, like, constantly bombard people with it. Like that what uh, what was it, FKJ and uh, 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 whatever that dude's name is. I think the record is, like, Ta-Dao. I remember when that came out, it was, just, like, they dumped so much money into ads on YouTube. Like, anytime I watched a music video on YouTube, the ad before it was that dude going, Da-da! and playing the, like, fucking saxophone. And it got to the point where that riff and his voice was just, like, a part of my life. And then all of a sudden, if I was out and I heard the record, it's like, oh, this fucking record, yeah, this is just good. But, like, I never really liked it from the beginning. It just got fucking forced into my brain, and I just had to accept it at one point. So I do think as you get older and your lifestyle changes, certain party records aren't as appealing to you as before. You know, a lot of times you discover a new record when you're partying and you're hanging out with your friends, you know. If you're, like, an old and you got kids and you have a whole different lifestyle and you're not out partying all the time, like, you're not going to have those moments where you connect a certain song to a certain memory of your friend, you know, beer bonging something or someone taking a shot out of someone's belly button. Like, if you don't have those memories to go with a certain song, like, you're not going to connect with a record that's meant to be for those moments. So... It's not necessarily that we get older. I think it's just our lifestyles change, and maybe we do have more refined taste. We start to learn more and more what we like about songs. But
0: I don't a, know. that's like actually a really good. That's actually a really good answer. That's actually a really. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know.
1: you know. I still DJ in clubs, so like, I still have to listen to all of the new records that come out. And, like, the record pools and stuff, and that's, you know, sometimes before something's really big on the radio or whatever, like, I have to listen to these records every week and be like, all right, like, do I personally like this? Like, people are going to be asking me for Do I like this also? And those will be the first things I'll get and add to my, like, Serato crates. So, like, as a DJ, I've always been able to sort of be, like, in between, like, okay, this is popular, but I think it sucks. I'm going to have it. I'm not going to actively play it but I know I need to have it because people might ask me for it and there's also like alright this is new and I like it I'm going to play it you know so like I you know I find myself embracing a lot more new music when I have the choice to like go through it all and be like do I like this or not
0: yeah with me it's like there's certain artists I like the idea of them and I kind of feel like Hopefully, they grow. Mm-hmm. You know, You know, like a certain ideas where I like where to go in with stuff. Where I kind of feel like, yeah, okay, um, leave them about a year or two. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm. I think also, this is kind of a rewind. I think also part of it is just as you get older, you discover more of who you are. And there's, like, there's certain things you don't relate to or you don't necessarily need to relate to or you just sort of recognize, like, some of this stuff isn't real. Like, I'm not, I can't say I've never sold drugs, but, like, I'm not, you know, there's certain,
0: there's certain
1: tropes that are part of hip-hop culture that are just, like, that's not my life right now. So, like, I don't necessarily need to hear that in a record, you know? you have people who that is their life, so it's like the soundtrack to that lifestyle. You have a lot of people who sort of like romanticize and fantasize about it. Like, the biggest consumers of rap music are always like young white kids who are just like sitting around listening to niggas rap about guns and cocaine and bitches, and they're like hanging out in the dorm room, like drinking like cheap beer and like spending their dad's money. Like they're completely removed from that actual lifestyle. It's just, like, entertainment to them. They just sit around fantasizing what it must be like to live that life. So I think as you get older, everyone sort of, you know, gravitates away from fantasizing about a certain lifestyle in a song that's not necessarily something they want to live or think is cool or, you know. know. When you're, like, 17, there's, like, so much. You're so, like, curious about what the rest of the world is like and how everyone else is living when you're thirty six you're like, all right, like I think I know how the world works now, like this is what's for me, this is what isn't for me. Or you've like seen you've like seen the ugly side of those things. Like, you know what, like when I was sixteen I was listening to this dude talking about guns and blow. Then somewhere in my twenties, like I got caught up in this situation and I saw some dude get his fucking his fucking head shot off, you know living that lifestyle it's so, like it's just not cool anymore now I realize like it's like people like really caught up in that and it's like not always a glamorous you know jewelry jewelry fast or whatever
0: no it's not you know yeah you know shit <sighs> well I guess I gotta wrap this up and whatnot. you know okay great chatting with you
1: yeah, that was fun. Yeah, I enjoyed that a lot.
0: Yep. So is there anything else you wanted to check out that you have out or anything?
1: Oh, let me see. I've been working on a bunch of music that I'm going to hopefully release when COVID is not an issue we have to worry about as far as public gatherings. Uh, I've been working on... I've been making a bunch of like meditation music during... COVID. I put out some of it back in December. I'm gonna release some more soon. Uh, I think some of it's on Audius or Bandcamp. I've obviously didn't release it under the James Nasty name or whatever. It's like a much more complicated link. Can I like email it to you or send you the link to just like post? So I don't have to like say it out loud. Um Yeah. Oh, I was in the um there's a big documentary coming to Netflix in April. That I have a brief appearance in TT's the artist film Dark City Beneath the Beat. It's a documentary on like some of you know today's club music culture that I think everyone should see. That's coming to Netflix. I think April fifteenth. Dark City Beneath the Beat documentary. I think that's all I have going on right now.
0: That's dope, you know. We look forward to hearing yeah. that. We look forward to seeing that.
1: Yeah, it's good. I saw the. I went to like the like exclusive screening before in the in the COVID time before COVID times. It's an amazing song. It's amazing. Up.
0: Until next time. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Take it easy. You too, man. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Mm -hmm. Hey, that was James Nasty. Keep an eye and ear out for him. Until next time, take it easy.